0: God goes to great lengths to rescue lost and hurting people. That's what the story is all about. The story of the Bible, God's great love affair with humanity. Kind of got a subdued crowd, because I think you're still processing a lot of food that might be within your body. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Hope you got to be with some family, got to enjoy some food. We're in this 15th chapter of the story, and uh, we are uh, looking at God's messengers today. Before we get there, has anyone ever seen the street artwork of Edgar Mueller? Yeah, so some of the first service that we're here had. Uh, isn't this incredible? He literally paints streets. So, could you imagine turning the corner on this street, wherever the street is at, and seeing this before you—this cavern into the ground? Like, I—it would—it would just freak you out, wouldn't it? I mean, this guy is incredible. Uh, some of the work that he does. Uh, this next one is a favorite of mine. Uh, it's called the Emerald City. And so, uh, as you approach this, it looks like you're just walking into a cavern of emeralds and a little waterfall. You know what? What looks like a normal street, after he gets done with it, looks like a a, a cave. And here's how he does it. He has a fisheye uh, lens that he lays his project out with. So uh, from this vantage point, he begins to tape off the lines uh, that will create um, this uh, uh, amazing artwork. And, uh, And to see this final creation, you have to be in about this general position. Uh, if you stand anywhere else, like if you stand at the front or the side of it, it would just look like paint was spilled on the ground. But as he does this, you can, here Here he is, he's getting ready to finish up this project. Uh, this is called uh, the, the Lava lava Cave, I think is what it's called. Uh, you know, you can see some of the tape still on the ground. He's not quite finished, but uh, the finished work looks like that. I mean, isn't that incredible? You just turn, say you're riding a bike or something, you, just, <laughs> <"What?"> you know, <laughs> I, somebody had to set up a camera. And just, you know, like like run a 5K, and, and this is the street they'd all turn on. And, ah, you know, it would just be so much fun. Uh, but anyway, what Edgar says about his artwork, he says, In my paintings, I'm trying to question our perception of daily life by changing the appearances of public spaces. Playing with positives and negatives force people to think twice about everything they see. What looks like this is actually this. And so... Uh, From a certain vantage point, what looks like a street becomes uh, an emerald cave or a lava flow. And so uh, his artwork challenges people with their perception of the normal daily existence of whatever. In chapter 15 of the story, the prophets, the messengers of God, are doing that very same thing. They are challenging Israel's perspective on what they see. They are trying to get Israel to see from God's vantage point, see through God's eye, God's lens of what the reality is. Um, The prophetic books make up, from Malachi uh, back to Isaiah, they make up uh, about 29% of the Old Testament. About 30% of the Old Testament is uh, is prophecy. About 22 percent of the entire Bible would fit into the uh, that 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 category, that genre of prophecy, and so the point is this: that for us to grasp um, God's perception of Israel requires some time spent in trying to understand the prophets, and it's challenging at times because many times the prophets will use poetry and the tools of poetry to uh, illustrate. Um, God's perception, uh, or God's, from God's vantage point, the reality that Israel's living. So, so poetry and prophecy is, is, can really make it challenging to, to figure out. Um, one scholar, Robert Alter, says about poetic uh, par- prophecy, he says, the poetic poetry of the Bible, or prophetic poetry of the Bible, is not just a set of techniques for saying impressively what could be said otherwise. Rather, it is a particular way of seeing and imagining the world. It's changing the perception. This looks like a city street, but it's really a cave. This looks like everything is, you know, normal in life, but really from God's vantage point, there's some serious problems that need to be addressed by God's people. The word prophet, it comes from the Hebrew word habib, uh, and it means to bubble forth, like to to bubble forth from a spring, to, to rise up. And so these prophets would would rise up, if you will, by God's divine hand to call Israel to, normally, repentance, to to get them to turn from destructive practices. Um, They were like the Obi-Wan Kenobis of their day. They lived apart from normal society. They often uh, lived in strange manners, strange dress, did strange things. And the prophets were sometimes called seers. So sometimes they were presenting a, a view that, that Israel couldn't see. Sometimes they were called watchmen or announcers, that they were announcing uh, some, some coming destruction unless Israel changed their course of conduct. And so often the prophet would warn the kings especially of uh, the need for them to change the direction of how they're leading God's people. Uh, we might call them the early warning system. And uh, God sent many prophets, as we've already uh, said. That uh, much of the Bible is prophetic. And why would God do that? Well, 1 Chronicles tells us why. Or Second Chronicles thirty-six: The Lord, the God of our fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place, meaning Jerusalem and the temple. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his word, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose up against the people, until there was no remedy. Why did God send the prophets over and over again? So many prophets that do some really crazy things. Why? Because he had compassion on his people. Now, if you missed last week, we talked about how the kingdom of Israel split in two. There was a northern kingdom led by Jeroboam. Jeroboam jumped up north. With ten, the ten northern tribes, and then the two southern tribes, comprised uh, led by Rehoboam, comprised what we call the Kingdom of Judah or the Southern Kingdom, and so uh, Jeroboam, who jumped up north, did not want his people going back to Jerusalem to worship. And so what he did is he, he, he went back into the archives of some place, and he pulled out some old idols, or maybe he made some some new figures of some old idols, and mainly these golden calves. And he, he said, here, people, here are your, here are your gods. Worship here. And the reason he did that is he did not want the kingdom to reunite, because that means he would no longer be king. And so his selfish desire was to keep the kingdom split in two. And so Idolatry becomes this huge problem for Israel, not just in the northern kingdom, but in the southern kingdom as well. And so we pick up our story in 1 Kings chapter 16. In the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. So he's in the south and then Ahab the son of I mean in the north and then Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years and Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him this northern king led by king Ahab and his wife who was a real Jezebel actually she was the Jezebel the one that we, we often use that metaphor she's a real Jezebel she's a wicked woman she certainly was that she was a princess of the Sidonian kingdom, and she brought her idols from her hometown into, northern, uh, into the northern Israel, and one of the, her main idols of worship was the god Bel. now B-A-A-L. And so this god uh, had multiple... Um, uh, facets to it, but one of the facets that was important to her and important to anyone who's part of an agricultural kingdom is the god of weather. So the god of Baal that she worshipped uh, uh, and set up around was uh, this this god of weather, the god this, this aspect of the god of Baal. And not only did she set up these gods for Israel to worship, these idols, She also sought to kill God's messengers, God's prophets, so uh, if she could find any of God's prophets among the people, she would put them to death, and she put many to death. She was a wicked woman, and she's Ahab's wife, and together they make a wicked pair. So the Lord raises up a prophet. His name is Elijah, and Elijah is sent to give a new perspective on uh, what is going on to, to challenge Ahab's understanding of the reality that he sees. So, uh, Elijah the Tishabite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So, here's what the prophet says. He says, rain's going to stop. Now, what's weird about this is, In Palestine, there had never been a a drought that long, a three-year drought. Can you imagine not seeing rain for three years, not even dew on the ground? Like you wake up in the morning, no dew, it's just dry for three years. Ahab's like, no way, we've never seen that before. Wow, but you're going to see something you've never expected. So this three-year drought will take place because... Ahab and Jezebel have led the people into idolatry, and there's going to be a consequence for this decision. And so, um, uh, idolatry is a big problem. Actually, in the book of the law, it was punishable by death. Why would God be so jealous? Well, one thing is, God, the Lord God is the only God worthy of worship. All other gods that are worshiped only bring death, not life. And uh, I saw this firsthand in 2002 when I went to India on a mission trip, where uh, this uh, this nation, a very small nation, uh, you know, land land size but population, they're the second largest nation in the world, just right behind China. And one of their main systems of worship is that of Hinduism, and so they have 33 million gods and counting. Like you walk into these uh, these idol stores and you find your idol and your favorite one or the one you need at that time and you purchase it and you put it and so you know you'd see the elephant gods and businesses because that was a god of prosperity but the one that you know that that we often think about when we think of hinduism is that of worshiping the cow right and uh they don't eat cows they don't dissuade anybody from you know or don't want to uh keep a cow from going anywhere it wants to go So if a cow wanders into your house, he wanders into your house. There's not a lot you can do about it because that's your God. That's one of your gods. And so here you have these people, many of them who are starving to death, even as I speak. And there's a source of food that we find very delicious among our, our, most of us do, uh, uh, the cow, right? Uh, They can't eat that. And then they also have to live among the filth that it creates in the streets and everywhere. And so... It makes a difference what you worship, and if you worship uh, these an idol, it will only bring death, as it is doing in the second largest, most populated country in the world. And so, uh, I just you know it's just hard to imagine that that people would bow down to something that like an animal or something that they fashioned with their own hands, but that's what was happening in Israel. They were bowing down to gods that looked like cows. Now in our country, we don't bow down to cows. Well, some of you might have like a holy moment when you pull up outside of Outback Steakhouse or something, you know, it's kind of like this is my second church, man. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's if you're like that, but uh but the point is that, you know, we, we our idols are much more insidious. Uh like we live in a culture that's so driven by fame and prosperity and 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 everybody wants to be the next American idol, and they want to get their likes on their social media and and they want to be popular and and so we we have people bowing down to these gods of money and fame and power and significance and and so it, it's it's just really fascinating to think about uh, how our gods are th- these false gods that exist in our country. Are taking people out. I I recently been been watching this uh, PBS special by um, Ken Burns on country music. Anybody been watching this lately? Yeah, pretty fascinating. Uh, Just amazing stories of how much this music has shaped our culture. Our culture has shaped the music, however you want to see it. But it's alarming to see how many of those just fantastic artists died at the idol of fame. You know, Hank Williams died at 29 and uh and johnny cash almost died uh you know from from all this fame and so so we can see how there are other gods that bring death in our own country now i have a list of questions i'm going to throw up here and uh i just want you to sort of think about these i'll walk through them slowly but allow you to examine your own life to see if there's any idol worship in your world okay so what are you most disappointed with? Is there anything that comes into your world that, um, that you put more hope on than, or in than the Lord God, if it was taken away? So what do you sacrifice your time and money for? Is there anything in your life that you give more to than you would give to the Lord God? That's why, you know, that's why we tithe, our family, we tithe first because we want to honor God first with our wealth. Um, If it's kingdom business, if it's got something to do with kingdom growth, if it's got something to do with someone's spiritual development, that's a priority to us. Uh, Number three, um, what do you uh, have great fear about or great fear about losing? So if I lost this or if I lost him or I lost her, my life would be over. Um, No one wants to lose somebody they love, a spouse, a grandparent, a child. Nobody wants to go through that. But if our focus is on the Lord God, we can suffer a significant loss like that and our life doesn't end. But we know of stories where people lose something or someone and they feel like life can't go on. Um, Number four, where do you go when you get hurt? This is probably one of the most important questions in this list of questions. What brings you comfort in times of pain? When you've been hurt at work or at school or in the family, do you turn to like food or or porn or gambling or do you turn to like sleep or you know, drinking, or whatever it might be, like or do you turn to the Lord? Do is the first place you turn to when life is turned upside down God? Because if it is, that says that we're, put, we're we're finding our comfort in the Lord. It's not that our family can't comfort us or our friends or whatever, but it's that we understand that our ultimate source of healing is found in the Lord. Number five, what makes you mad? So some of you might have got mad on Thursday. Some of you might have been mad on Friday, right? I'm talking about football here in case you're not a football fan, none of this is making sense, but... Uh, and, and some of us don't care, but, like, I've seen people just literally go berserk because their sports team didn't win or, you know, their man wasn't elected or their whatever, you know, like, people can really get mad at things that really don't matter much. Uh, number six, what brings you the most joy? What brings you, like, that inner, I mean, just fills you with, like, excitement. Like, is it things that are, that are, are, are wholesome and good and pure and, and godly? Or is it things that are ungodly? Like, we should not find our entertainment for what put Jesus on the cross. You know what I mean? And then the last one, whose applause do you long for? So I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, you people pleasers out there. But I am one. If I asked you to show your hands because you are a people pleaser, you put your hand up just to please me. So you know what I'm talking about. But like, if you long for the applause of people, it's crushing when people reject you or do not do not like you or do not love you because of some position you hold or something you said or or whatever. And so, so the my, but my point is this: that though we don't have cows walking around our nation that we're bowing down to, we do have counterfeit gods, gods that present themselves as a place of comfort, a place of happiness, a, a, a god that will give us some personal inner self-worth or, uh, that, that we long for, but they're really counterfeit gods that exist in our world. I am a peanut butter fan. I really am. I love peanut butter. Like, I really did get through my college years with peanut butter. I'm one of those, you know, peanut butter and ramen noodles. But one day, my wife came home early in our marriage with something that looked like this. Creamy. Peanut butter. This is counterfeit. Does not say JIF. JIF. Because there's only one peanut butter. And if it's not Jif, it's not the real deal. Now, I know the ingredients say the same, but there's something different. And you know it. If you're a peanut butter fan like I am, you know when you've picked up the counterfeit. They serve it at restaurants sometimes, you know, places. Grandma has it, you know. And and I'm just telling you, like, this is a counterfeit. You'll know it when you taste it. And that's the way it is for us. That really worship the Lord. Like we might get drawn to something, some hobby, some club, some interest, but after a while it just doesn't quite satisfy. And there's a longing in our heart for something real and deep that brings us significant joy. And so there are counterfeit gods among us. And questions like this point us to look at, examine our life to see if we're allowing any kind of idolatry in our life. I know there, there, are people, there are all kinds of people that come to church on Sunday morning, and there are all kinds of people who will listen and watch this message later on. And there are some people that are like, man, you know, I, I do believe in God, but I don't know that he's ever brought me real joy. Taste and see. And, and to do that, you have to long for, you have to take some time and put some effort into worshiping the Lord unhindered, uh, you know to, to take the time to to read god 's Word and think about the context of of, of what 's going on to dive in deep and to allow God to spend uh, spend time in your heart and, and and if you do, you will not be disappointed sometimes christians don 't look very much like they 're Christ, but that doesn 't mean that god isn 't real so in in this Upper story that we've been looking at throughout the Bible, God is trying to renew this relationship that had been broken by sin in the garden. God is trying to bring his people back to him. And so when idolatry comes into uh, Israel's existence, it's a great threat to the relationship that God is trying to heal. So, back in our story that we're looking at, chapter 15, uh, about Elijah and Ahab. Elijah said no rain for 3 years and then comes the big showdown. Now, uh, what what's going to happen is Elijah's going to challenge the weather god, the god of Baal. That's why he said no rain. No rain for 3 years. This this is y- you worship the god of rain, I'll show you. No rain. That's kind of what happened in the Exodus. Egypt worshipped the Nile, I'll turn it to blood. They worshipped the sun, I'll turn it to darkness. You get my point? So uh, here's the thing we have to learn. God withholds his blessings in the area of Israel's life that they had elevated to a God status. This might be one of the most important points of this message. That when we elevate something to God's status, God will not bless that, his, his, his competition. He's not going to do it. Like, if our, if our end-all is to have this wonderful relationship with Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright or whatever, you know, and we'll just sacrifice anything and everything, including our standards of morality, or God's like, you're never going to find it. I am not going to bless my competition. I am not going to allow a counterfeit God come between me and you. When you and I experience a drought in our life. Maybe it's a drought of joy or a drought of peace or a, a, a drought of fulfillment, purpose. We need to ask ourselves those questions that I threw up a little while ago. May, you know, maybe we're making our self-worth about a certain job or a certain status in our job, certain promotion, certain elevation. God's like, no, nope, never going to happen because if you're trying to find your self-worth in what you do, then you're never going to achieve that because I'm going to allow you to hit rock bottom so that you'll find that your self-worth is found in me. Maybe your God is money, and if I have enough money, I feel safe. And God's like, well, I'm not going to bless that. I'm going to allow you to feel unsafe until you come to the point where you find safeness in me, and then I'll supply that. Maybe uh, it's a big part of problem in our world today, people try to find their happiness and joy in their sexual experiences. And God's like, I'm going to let you run that course until you find yourself so empty by all these relationships, until you find that the real relationship that you long for is found in me. God withholds his blessings in the areas of our lives that we've elevated to a God status. So back in our story, Elijah calls for a showdown. And they go up on a mountaintop. Now summon all the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. It's a lot of folks. Like We're, we're like over 800, we're almost 1,000 people. Right, so Ahab went throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets. On. It's, it's, this is showdown. This is like OK Corral, right? Elijah went before the people and said, "How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is your God, follow Him. But if it is Baal, if 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 Baal is your God, follow Him." But the people said nothing. So here are all the prophets, almost a thousand eight hundred fifty at least, on one side at one altar. Here's one prophet, Elijah, who looks like Yoda, you know, kind of goofy looking, in front of this other, other place of worship, this other altar, if you will. And then here's Israel assembled around the mountain face there. And, they're, they're, and, and, and Elijah says, who are you going to choose? Who are you going to choose? And they said, nothing. They didn't want to make a choice, which you and I know. If you don't make a choice, you're making a choice right? Why didn't they make a choice? Well, it could have been feared Jezebel was a real Jezebel, right? It hadn't turned out well for those who followed God who were called God's messengers, right? She'd been killing those. I think it's a little bit simpler than that, though. I think they wanted both. They wanted to worship the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. That's sort of their traditional God, but then they had this back pocket God, Baal, who helped them out when they needed rain or, or whatever, and so they wanted both, and, and I think that that's how we are too. We love the Lord God. You're in church today because there's some element about who you are that desires God to be part of your life, but then we walk out of here, and there's some other area in our life that we're not quite trusting fully in God, and so we keep, you know, like I remember for me, money was such an issue when I was younger, young family, and like rather than trust the Lord... I trusted credit cards. And guess what I found out? That the god of credit cards will run you in the ground until you're almost destroyed before you finally figure out to trust the Lord God financially. Or or maybe it's purpose in life. You know like there there are people that go through this world never understanding that God can give you more purpose that he can take he can take a person who's, who's got an average life, put them in an average job, but it's not average when they know Jesus because around them, they're showing and demonstrating the love of God to people who don't like. I mean, it's, everything changes. So anyway, Israel, I think, wanted both. And, uh, and the, so the prophet, in that one question, reveals their duplicity, that they are torn. Their heart is not fully devoted to the Lord, but it's been separated by their fears or separated by their doubts, whatever. So uh, we read, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, "'Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, "'since there are so many of you,' right? "'You shouldn't have no problem with that. "'Call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire.' "'So they took the bull given to them and they prepared it. "'Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon.' Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. They danced around the altar they had made. So Elijah says, prepare your altar, but let your God light the fire. And as they danced for four hours at least, no response from the God of Baal. Then I love this part. It's the funniest part in the Old Testament, right? At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he's in deep thought. Or he's busy, which is a metaphor that he's going to the bathroom. Or he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and maybe, maybe he needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder. And they slashed themselves with swords and spears as, their, as it was their custom until their blood flowed. Look at this mess. Still no response from Baal. I, I, I think Elijah... He's probably laughing sadly, if you know what I mean. Like, he can't believe that they would bow down to something they fashioned with their own hands. And and they're cutting themselves for it. How foolish to think that anyone would bleed out for something they could put in their own hands. Have you not seen people bleed out for alcohol? for drugs, for porn. I have. We've all heard the stories, maybe we've lived the story, and that's why we're here today. Because there's some part in our life we have bled out for. Till it almost killed us, had it not been for Jesus, we would have died. People will bleed out for the most ridiculous things. And so I think that's a reason that suicide has so dramatically increased in our life because people have that, every human being has that God-shaped hole that only God can fill, but people are constantly trying to put something other than God in that hole, and it will never satisfy. So then Elijah takes his turn. So Elijah has his bull slaughtered puts it on there, and then he has him dump water upon water upon water, buckets of water until it's totally doused. So there's going to be no doubt that this was a miracle from the Lord. And so at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you are Lord, our God, and that you are turning their hearts back, back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, you bet they did, fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. No question now, everybody's saying, even the prophets of Baal, the Lord, he is God. Can you imagine that moment? That had to be one of my top 10 moments that I want to see replayed in heaven. Yeah, you know, I mean, just, you got, you got thousands of people, and you got one One man standing up for the Lord, not for his pride, but for the Lord's glory. And he calls on the name of the Lord. And this fire, this is about evening time because they've been dancing and sacrificing themselves all day to Baal. So about evening time, this fire, can you imagine this? This ball of fire falls from heaven and boom, everything is consumed. Everybody hits the deck and cries out, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh's God, not Baal. Yahweh's God not Baal. Woo! That's a worship service you're not going to forget. God will go to no he will not spare anything to bring us back from the idol worship that's so prevalent in our world. He will not withhold anything. And why? Because if you want to hurt God, if you if you want to hurt God, say you believe in him and then don't serve him. Say you believe in him, and then don't worship him. Idolatry hurts God. It injures him, because he wants this sacred relationship between his people and himself, and he's not willing to allow anyone to come between them or any other God. This is so illustrated so profoundly in another prophet's life, the prophet Hosea. And so hey, Hosea, we read his story. Hosea, he said to him, God speaking to Hosea, "Go and marry a prostitute." You know, sometimes it's not the greatest thing in the world to be a preacher. Uh, <coughs> so that, so some of his children, some of his children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. See, idolatry is 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 like we're prostituting ourselves. We're share, we're we're letting another god buy our love. Or we're trying to buy something from another god. And that's not how it works. So this odd request, this prophet says, go marry this prostitute. And you can imagine how it broke Hosea's heart when after he married her and they had children, she returns back to a life of prostitution. And then we read, in later on in his story, So the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. So she's left him. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. I don't know how many men are in this room would go try, after their wife had left prostitution and returned back to it, would go try to rescue her back. Or, or wives in this room whose husbands have had multiple affairs would take them back. But I want you to know that's how the Lord saw Israel as prostituting herself with other gods. And then God wants her back. Even though her life is stained, God's grace can make her white as snow. And so he wants to have this relationship with every one who calls him the Lord. Isaiah may have given maybe one of the most famous prophets of the Old Testament gave this prophecy. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. I, every Sunday, I'm always one of my favorite things about Sunday is watching the kids, and uh, not the seven and eight year olds. I, you know, you know, they've kind of grown up and they kind of get mouthy, But I'm talking about like the little ones, right? You know, the, how they kind of you know, they're just running around having a ball, you know, uh, and 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 their whole world is like brand new every moment. I love that, you know. And so there's lots of moms in the in, in, in church on Sunday, and and and. Keep, you know just to think of this thought that a virgin would have a child, not just any child, but God himself, God put on flesh and bone, we call him Jesus and so so here we have this 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 what we think is this teenage girl, but really she's going to bring forth the Son of God. who would ever conceive of that like but God's like you and you have your perception of the world, but i want you to see the world through my eyes that i can do things that you never thought possible. This is probably my favorite picture by Edgar Muller. It's called The Crevasse. And it looks you see that guy at the edge, it looks like he's falling in, right? And and it, i think that that's sometimes how our life is feeling like we're falling into the edge of a deep, dark crevasse. And it looks like there's no hope, but really there is hope. There's actually only one hope, Jesus. He's the only one who can bridge the crevasse between us and God. He's the only one that can rescue us from the pit of whatever is tearing us apart, whatever is ruining our lives. Sometimes it feels like you might feel like right now you're at the top of the crevasse. I, I want you to know that your perception of the world going on around you is not how God sees things most often. Most of the time, we're catching up to the reality that God has for us. Most of the time, we're, we're coming into what God wants us to see, and that is there's always hope, there's always the chance of renewal, there's always the promise of heaven. <clears throat> so, God's prophets, his messengers, call us back to Yahweh, away from destruction. Call us back from the edge. Call us to a place where we can find great hope. As I close this morning, I'm going to be closing in prayer and I'm going to be uh, thinking about revelation. And I want you to think about revelation with me. I want you to think about the new heaven and the new earth. It doesn't look like much is going to change in this world, in our everyday existence. But God says, I'm getting ready to paint a picture of something that you never expected. Let's pray. Father God, as I try to imagine you sitting on your great throne, surrounded by the angels in deafening praise, surrounded by every facet and color of light knowing that all the saints of old are gathered around your space giving you glory that you are bringing a new heaven and a new earth and a new holy city to this earth that will be far than we could even imagine like Muller's paintings, we can't see it until it's laid out, but Father, help us to see in our mind's eye that you are preparing something so amazing, so significant, that uh, we, just, we just stand in awe, or we sit in awe right now, just, just thinking about uh, what you are getting ready to do. And Father, I know that, um, that we are your holy bride, that we, though we, we understand our, our problems, our sins of the past, you look at us with no stain or blemish that we are pure white even though we had a, a terrible prom night a terrible divorce some moment after the abortion clinic and we thought we'd never do that there, there are stains in our lives that that are so dark but yet to think that you could wash away you could make what's black white you could take what is broken and make it make it functioning again and with purpose and meaning Father I, I I'm just amazed and I thank you for sending messengers like Elijah and Elisha and Hosea and Jesus the greatest prophet of all Claim there is a new, a new life, a new heaven, a new earth coming, and that the new kingdom is already here. It's called the church. And Father, I just pray that we would uh, just hold on to that reality because that is everlasting. It's in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on the web at cornerstonechatham.org.